Anyway, uh, hey, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to The Daily Evolver. And a special thank you to Integral Life and uh, appreciate you hosting me these many years on the live platforms. And uh, it's just really nice to have the live energy. So thank you for those of you who are right here and now. Uh, today, I want to share an episode that I recorded a couple weeks ago. I haven't published it yet, but I have gotten some pretty pointed blowback uh, from a friend who previewed it and uh, said that uh, it seemed as if I was trashing and demonizing meditation. So I want to make sure you don't hear it that way, if lest you do. Uh, and I want to say loudly and clearly up front here that that is not the intended meaning or message of this podcast. I think I'm well on the record as considering meditation to be, uh, as I say in the introduction, a powerful and precious tool. I have studied, taught, and practiced it for over 30 years. I consider meditation broadly defined and practiced in endless variations all over the world and all time to be indispensable, indispensable to spiritual development. And, um, you know, and I've made that clear in this podcast and had, you know, many meditation teachers and uh, talked to many and, you know, worked with many. So I've also mentioned on this podcast uh, a couple of times, more than a few, actually, that um, I, an experience, I shared an experience that I had a couple decades ago, actually, uh, during an intense period of mindfulness meditation, where my an anxiety disorder was certainly exacerbated, if not created, and was only relieved after a couple years of pretty intense suffering uh, when I rejected the instruction of my teachers to just keep meditating, it'll go away, or you'll penetrate it. Uh, and maybe I would have penetrated it, actually. Uh, but I wasn't working with a teacher that closely and in ways. And, you know, I, 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 I've always blamed myself. And so... Um, Eventually, I did find relief in the somatic techniques, which are actually meditation techniques, of Peter Levine and his book, Taming the Tiger, which was, um, you know, trauma-based. And at any rate, a few weeks ago, I ran across an essay on the internet written by a meditation teacher I'd never heard of, Dan Lawton. And it was an essay called, When Buddhism Goes Bad, How My Mindfulness Practice Led Me to Meltdown. And when I read his story, I, I must say I felt an instant siblinghood with him, and I wanted to have him on the show. And his, his experience was actually more extreme than mine, but he also found relief in uh, the work of Peter Levine and, and the somatic techniques. And he actually also, in his essay, had done a lot more thinking about it, and a lot more, he was aware of a lot more of the, you know, sort of what he calls Buddhism, mod, Buddhist modernism, which is not the Buddhism of the traditions as much as it is a commodified mindfulness uh, Buddhism or meditation practice, shorn of you know, secular, that uh, doesn't recognize or does downplays the dangers of meditation, which the traditions themselves don't downplay, actually. And I've, you know, studied Buddhism intensely, and I know that. But even with that said, I was not able to avoid some um, 
so you know i think now knowing what i now know now would have been uh, very avoidable so at any rate um I'm the, this episode is with dan and um and i do think even though dan and i didn't talk about integral on the, uh, particularly because he doesn't really know integral uh and not, not all my guests do uh I do think that integral brings a lot of the solution to the problem that he and I discuss in that it integrates, you know, different streams of psychotherapy and somatic therapy and so forth that would keep a meditation practice being more firmly on the rails. But I didn't have integral at that point. So, uh, and a lot of people don't and uh, they're struggling and I'm very happy with this podcast and feel like this needs to be said loud and clear. And so I hope you enjoy it. It's me and Dan Lawton, and I'll just share it with you now. Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. You can find all my stuff at The Daily Evolver YouTube or at dailyevolver.com. I'm excited about my show today and my guest, Dan Lawton, who I am meeting here for the first time. I contacted Dan after having read an essay that he published on Substack called When Buddhism Goes Bad, How My Mindfulness Practice Led Me to Meltdown. And Dan's story really hit me between the eyes because I had similar experiences of having emotional and psychological meltdowns in my intense meditation years. And they were not recognized or treated as such by either me or my teachers. And I realize, in retrospect, um, how painful and destructive they were. I knew how painful they were at the time, uh, but also unnecessary. And I think Dan is really moving the ball here in terms of the evolution of consciousness in the sense that um, he... First of all, he's really, I think, analyzed things beautifully. And his essay represents a move forward in the development of a more mature relationship with meditation, which is a powerful and precious tool, but a dangerous one when treated facilely, which it is so much in this culture. So Dan, welcome, and thanks for coming on The Daily Evolver. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So let me start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about your path and how you came to write the essay. Yeah, um, I think I, I wrote the piece about 18 months after I had an incredibly traumatic meditation experience. And that experience happened, let's see, about a decade after I started meditating. And, um, you know, I got into practice like a lot of people did because I had heard meditation could be helpful for stress and for anxiety. And I would say I was just kind of a, you know, run of the mill kind of neurotic person when I started. I wasn't like dealing with like any huge emotional problems, but I was pretty reactive. I got angry sometimes. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I wanted a tool that, that could help me. And um, meditation was extraordinary for me, you know, when I started just by sitting by myself and quickly like up my practice by sitting a lot of long retreats and had just like huge benefits for the first couple of years, you know, like decrease in stress and anxiety, understanding my emotions more clearly, improvement in my relationships, and also kind of a sense of, of meaning and purpose 
like that I could understand myself a little bit better. And then because of that, perhaps like, you know, be a little bit better person in the world. But and as my practice continued and intensified, I slowly started to experience what I might describe as adverse effects or distress from my practice. And at first, I didn't recognize it at that, but there were times when I would experience some forms of dissociation. It seemed like my anxiety was actually increasing. And, you know, there are other kind of perceptual shifts that I wasn't really sure if they were, were good or not. And um, but the, only, the only kind of framework available to me at the time was a framework that these were signs of spiritual progress in some way so I can continue to meditate. And ultimately, about 18 months ago on a retreat, had an extraordinarily harrowing experience um, where my body sort of went into involuntary convulsions. I lost the sort of the border between myself and the rest of the world. Um, at, at times I was almost sort of paralyzed or frozen. And this experience didn't just stay with me on retreat. It continued into my life. And so, you know, in the last 18 months, I've done a lot of reflection around practice. I've been teaching meditation myself for four years. And one of the things I've realized that there are a lot of people who are having these types of experiences and they're not being spoken to in the meditation culture in general. So I felt like fiercely motivated to put this out there, especially having been in a teacher role, you know, and having kind of some level of clout to say, these things are happening to people. They're not being named. And, you know, people are coming to this practice looking for stress and a relief from anxiety and also like compassion and love. And often the, the fallout can be pretty disastrous. So, yeah, I mean, that was the motivation to write the piece. And, um, you know, it took a while to actually press the publish button. But now a few weeks after, I'm, I'm really glad I put it out in the world. Yeah. Uh, how has the response been? You know, it's been pretty positive. Um, I thought that I was going to get more pushback, but most of what I've gotten is people writing me saying, hey, you know, I had a similar experience. I never understood like it. Me. Yeah. I wrote right? it. Yeah. 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 Lots like that. My, my teachers told me it was my fault. You know, nobody told me what was going on. And, you know, your story is a lot like my story. And so I would say 85% of the responses have been positive. And then, of course, you know, has there, have there been a few people suggesting that I was, you know, like possessed by a demonic spirit? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's out there. Or like that, you know, that, you know, my experience was because I like catastrophically misunderstood Buddhism. You know, that's out there as well. But overall, I frankly was surprised at um, how seriously the piece was being debated in various corners of the internet and how people really seem to be thinking critically about this practice and asking a lot of questions that they might not have asked before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed in your, the comments on your Substack that, first of all, there were a lot of them. And second, they were very positive and appreciative for you telling the story. And um, it really helped sort out your thesis that you talk about. In fact, I'll read what you, 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 you wrote, that it's not like this stuff is unknown in Buddhism, but it's, it has not made the transition to the commodification of mindfulness in America 
um, in, 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 so far, at least. I think you'll, you'll be helping. But as you wrote, the terrain of fractured, disruptive, and altered states of consciousness has often been explored in Buddhist teachings throughout the centuries. But when these practices made their journey into Western culture, a sufficient understanding of the downsides of meditation was lost in transit. And it became, in a sense, this new religion. That's, that's how I accepted it. You know, uh, you, in fact, I think you call it Buddhist, Buddhist modernism in, in your piece. Yeah, and, and that's a, a, a term that I took from uh, the scholar David McMahon, who's written a really extraordinary book called The Making of Buddhist Modernism. And, you know, when I read that book, it was sort of shocking because I realized that I had been part of an organized religion in a lot of ways without knowing it. Now, I, I very much thought I was a sort of secular scientist of the mind, not believing in any rites or rituals or mystical beliefs, and that I was doing this kind of very materialist sort of thing when I was, was practicing. And upon reading McMahon's book, I realized that there were an extraordinary number of like beliefs that I had taken on. And perhaps like the most deleterious and the most strange is this idea that meditation practice is essentially one direction. Like it only leads us to being calmer, you know, peace, more peaceful and, ha and happier. You know, like um, Dan Harris's app is called 10% Happier. And this is, you know, what you'll hear from the vast majority of the people who are teaching practice. But when you look back, just not in like, not only in like the Buddhist canon, but also in the early stages of American Buddhism, there is clear acknowledgement that there are these unforeseen and very intense parts of the practice. In fact, I was reading the other day, um, you know, Jack Cornfield's 1979 uh, PhD dissertation, which he did specifically on like really intense effects of practice, you know, describing things like the body disappearing, involuntary convulsions, violent crying, and saying that these were the norm of what was experienced on meditation retreats, that this was not unusual. And, and so it's pretty extraordinary to read that and then to see the presentation of mindfulness today, which has really scrubbed all of that away. And I think there are a lot of people now who are having real challenges you know, because they just have no idea that this could happen to them. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I was one of them. Yeah, it's become a fundamentalist religion in a way. I mean, I, I, I had been raised in a fundamentalist religion. I was raised a good Christian boy. I became a good militant atheist for about a decade there. And then as I moved to Boulder and got into the post-progressive kind of scene, um, I, I, found meditation, uh, you know, there's a big Tibetan community here, Naropa, I joined the um, program there in the Masters of Divinity, and uh, I was meditating intensely. And, and, and yes, we learned in our classes about the kleshas and about things that could happen to you. And they're all well mapped out. But in practical terms, at least at the stage that I was practicing, which was the Mahayana stage, was basically mindfulness. Um, the cure was more meditation, <laughs> more and better meditation is the cure for your problems and to be ever more mindful. And, and so I did that, 
you know, I did these long retreats. There was a lot of spiritual materialism, even though that was a big, there was a lot of warning against that. But, you know, how many 10 days have you done? Have you done a 30? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and so I did that. And I, I found myself getting ever more anxious and uh, panicky on the cushion. And then in my life, and, and meanwhile, I was teaching meditation at this, at this point. I led retreats, you know, uh, three-day retreats, uh, many of them. And, um, and all the while thinking that I, I myself was not doing it well enough, I had to penetrate more deeply. Until one time I was at a retreat, uh, this was probably 20 years ago now, and I was sitting there flop sweating <laughs> onto the cushion, you know. <laughs> and, and looking at, like, I think there was another three days ahead of me, and I thought, you know, I'm leaving. I'm not doing this anymore. And that was something I never thought I would allow myself to do. I, I, in the moment, I experienced it as a failure, as a giving up, but it didn't take me long. And I'm thinking the drive home where I was exhilarated and I felt free from this um, the this, this spiral that I had gone down. And I, and I look at it that way today, and I was really um, educated a lot by your article and your uh, encounter with, uh, I'm forgetting her name, Willoughby, Willoughby Britton, I guess, who yes. is a, a scholar of this. And she talks about uh, an inverted U and, and that was very much my experience and yours. I mean, as you just described it. At first, meditation, oh my God. I mean, I had you know, all these belief systems and I psychological and all of a sudden, it's not about how I'm thinking or what I'm thinking. It's about observing thinking itself and watching it arise and, and the nature of the mind. Oh my God, I was just enamored of this. And many, many benefits flowed from mm -hmm. that. And then the inversion of the you. And it's like too far, too fast. I don't know exactly. But um, as, as you said, it's, um, and, and, and I actually want to get into what turned out to be the solution for both of us in a minute. But um, just in terms of the, the um, sort of religious aspect where the negative, it, it's used to explain everything you know, as religions do in, in a very simplistic way. And this stuff is all sort of whitewashed and, and dissolved, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the prevailing and most common narrative out there in like contemporary Buddhism is that, you know, as one progresses on the path, there are, is a sort of like in, inevitable stage of sort of, you know, discontent or sort of disillusion as one sort of becomes aware of like, you know, the impermanent nature of moment to moment experience or sort of, you know, the self as a process and not as being completely solid. And that these kind of experiential insights are destabilizing, but that destabilization is part of a process that will ultimately lead one to some sort of awakening. And, you know, this might be very explicit, like in some of the Theravada practices with this sort of four-part path of awakening, 
or you know it might just be spoken to much more broadly and a lot of times this stage is referred to as the dark night of the soul which is actually a, a christian term i believe from saint john the cross maybe um but that that term becomes very normal and and this really hooked me because when i was feeling like i was very distressed from practice there was a total vortex of of people who could talk or relate to that. You know, like a lot of sort of mindfulness teachers who I talked to seemed a little bit mystified by the fact that I was having these negative experiences. The only people that I found who were writing about and really normalizing like negative experiences, especially profoundly negative and intense experiences, you know, where one might be rendered like dysfunctional for long periods of time, uh, were teachers who were saying, look, this is a stage of the path. And not only that do you have to practice through it, but if you don't practice through it, right, you may be stuck here in this sort of like bummer liminal state for all of eternity. And, you know, I look back at that and I think, why did I believe that? But it was because I was just like situationally very vulnerable. I had experiences that nobody was really speaking to or explaining and so in those situations, we take the only narratives, the only stories, the only frameworks that were given. And the only one that I was given that was coherent at all was that this was part of the path. And then if I pushed to the other side of this, there would be transcendence, there would be awakening, there would be the pure Buddha mind. So I continued to press the accelerator far past when I should have. Yeah, me too. Do you think just, we're both practitioners, we both know our way around. Do you think that, you know, a lot of these uh, meditation practices and so forth were developed in monasteries in these very rarefied situations where people would put themselves through extreme states, they were held by containers that understood it. Do you think that there is a penetration through that that is uh, to a promised land on the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think about this question, you know, probably 80% of my waking hours. And um, <laughs> I talk about it all the time. And I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I think it's, it's possible, right? It's, it's definitely like within the realm of possibility that, that there are, you know, transcendent, powerful experiences that, that one can move into and that there can be sort of, I don't know, like an ocean of peace at the end of this sort of island of suffering. But, you know, I don't think those claims have been like, substantiated in, in any way that I'm willing to like put my health on the line for. Right. And I think when I look at the, the field of kind of modern proclaimed arahats sort of moving through like the digital ecosystem, I'm not really very confident in their claims to attainments and, and what they've experienced. And so I guess for myself, since I did put a decade into practice and I did achieve some extraordinary depths of concentration and, you know, had a lot of really powerful bombastic experiences, there is very little in me that feels like I, I could, I needed to go further. Like I couldn't have gone further. Like my, my body was breaking down. And so in some ways I feel grateful that the fallout was so hellacious because it was a little bit of an anecdote to this idea that I needed to go further. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to refrain from, you know, 
saying like, oh, well, it's not there because I, I just don't know. And I think humility seems to be one of the values that we're really missing in these conversations. And I, and I really feel that that needs to be in the picture. Like there's a lot that's just completely unknown about these processes as, as they've come to, to the West. There's a lot of people who will move forward with incredible certainty and make sweeping truth claims. Oh, so, um, so And true. I'm just so skeptical of that, you know? Yeah, me too. And having been uh, around the Tibetan Buddhist lineage and seeing the real Tibetan teachers uh, and, and Rinpoche's and so forth coming through, I was never quite so sure they were as attained as they claimed either. I don't know. But it's certainly, you know, not in the mix of how it's, how it's presented. And for most of us living a Western life, it's just, that, you know, it's, it's, it's not the way to go is what I realize. And, and like you, yeah. I had no choice. I, I had to stop. And I had yeah. residual, and in some ways still do, uh, uh, issues from it where, uh, you know, for it's a couple of years after I went into a, a, a generalized anxiety disorder, high blood pressure, palpitations, uh, obsessive thinking and, and behaviors. And um, I never thought I'd get out of it. And yeah. I, I finally did through a, the same process that you mentioned tantalizingly briefly in, in your essay, which is somatic experiencing. Yeah, and I stumbled upon it, and um, and it put to, it's a process developed by Peter Levine, uh, and I would uh, be so curious as to how you found it and what happened and uh, yeah, the story there. I mean, I was aware of Levine's work previously because you know it's referenced a lot in mindfulness circles, and I had read some of his books, but. It was really in the aftermath of my experience, my traumatic retreat experience, where I, I kind of started doing SE therapy. And I feel like incredibly fortunate that, you know, before this experience, I had already encountered some of Willoughby Britain's work. And so after I went on this retreat and had this like awful experience and, you know, it was really rendered just to kind of give a, a full picture of this in, in a place where, where I was experiencing sort of non-referential panic all the time the panic was not tied to specific events and also you know there's this this story often told in practice that when one sort of you know dislodges or kind of eradicates this feeling of being a separate self in the world everything will be beautiful but i was having problems differentiating between myself and the rest of the world which is like a real challenge like to drive a car you know or to have a conversation so all of these things were happening and um, it was through Willoughby Britain and through her organization Cheetah House that like I got the suggestion that, you know, the type of therapy that's helping people the most is somatic experiencing and to check that out. And, you know, what's interesting about SE is it, it has a, a mindfulness component to it in that you know, you're often asked to become aware of, you know, things like sensations, images, you know, what you feel in your body, your emotion. But what's different is there's a sense of agency in it. Like you have autonomy in a way that you don't in Dharma practice. So much of Dharma practice for me was about being asked to just be non-judgmentally aware of my experience. I'm just a passive object watching things happen. And I'm not supposed to act on anything, right? That's bad. Don't react. Just watch. SE, you know, 
often you're focusing on different sensations or different experiences. And then the therapist is, is suggesting, okay, now what happens if you move your body like this or you move your body like that? What happens if you push against the wall, you know? And so you start to realize that there's a way that you can use like body movements and thoughts and emotions and external resources to regulate your autonomic nervous system. This language was very powerful for me because I'd already been teaching stress reduction and it just gelled immediately. And so, you know, I started to observe my experience, not with the idea of being able to tolerate any sensation that I felt, but actually to do this thing that's quite her heretical in, in Buddhism. Like I wanted to change my experience. Yeah. If I felt bad. I wanted to feel better. If I felt anxious, I wanted to feel less anxious. I didn't want to just observe. I wanted to change. And it was such a, a reawakening to just a very natural, like not just human capacity, but animal capacity. I mean, SE is very predicated upon like animal physiology and like, can you watch animals in the way that their nervous systems work so well? And, and so I really touched back into, you know, a sense of like joy and pleasure that I think I've been denying myself for a long time. And so suddenly you just like, you know, I did a lot of what I wanted to do. It's a, it's a, it's very personal, but for me, a lot of it was like, you know, one of the, the, the exercises that became very important to me was I developed a sort of this gardening practice. You know, I never gardened before. <laughs> and the essence of it was, it was kind of comically absurd. I would just go out and I would just plant things. And I would always plant them wherever I wanted, right? With, with no regard of where they were supposed to be planted or whether they would live or they would die. And I was just in my body the whole time, just kind of moving around, right? And it's very different than mindfulness because like, like I'm doing something now. I'm moving. It's a sense of power, agency. Yeah volition, autonomy, all of that had been lost in my Buddhism as I picked up a sort of Spartan-like kind of pleasure-denying attitude that the worst thing that could happen would be that I would be pulled into the central pleasure of eating an ice cream cone or something like that. I'll tell you, man, I ate a lot of ice cream over the last year. It was incredibly helpful for me, you know, and, and as was a lot of other behaviors that I had put behind. So anyway, that's a long kind of ramble and there's so much there but but i mean so helpful for me to connect That's what I love. yeah yeah me too and how it happened for me was i i read peter levine's book taming the tiger where he talked all about animal physiology as you're talking about and uh, i just did the most kind of idiosyncratic practice with it i had no therapist i was doing it on my own but i would just close the windows and lock the door and allow myself to express my anxiety. Uh, so I would scream, I would shake, I would, you know, I would do what the impala does if they get away from the lion, stand and shake for an hour and then yeah. mosey on and get on with your life. And to actually uh, express this into the world was very, very healing. It's, I mean, in real time, I could feel the healing. I, I could feel myself coming back into my body and, you know, into my uh, inhabiting myself again. Then I also started playing the piano again. I'm not a good pianist, but it was like you gardening. It was like something I could do that wasn't observing my mind, you know, and my body sensations. Body sensations was a key to my practice. And that, as, 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 as your, um, your, 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 the person you were talking about, uh, Willoughby Britton, talks about, that that literally causes some of your brain to 
get outsized, you know, or I forget what she was talking about there, but uh, I definitely felt that. And then just the, th the third rung uh, or the third prong of, of what I did was at this point in my Masters of Divinity program, I was a chaplain. So I was working at the hospital as a chaplain. And there was something very therapeutic to me about sitting uh, at the bedside of people who were actually dying and not just afraid they were dying like I was. And that, it, you know, burst the bubble. And honest to God, Dan, I, I was, I can remember the moment. I was walking down the hall with my clipboard, my little, you know, pastoral clipboard. And it occurred to me, you, you haven't felt anxious all morning. And I stopped and I thought about it. And it's true, I hadn't. And I also knew that I was not going to go back to that. Yeah. And it was over. Yeah. And, and that was one moment. And it's yeah. true. I mean, I'm a, I'm a garden variety neurotic now. Right. You know, I'm three on a <laughs> yeah. 10 scale. But not the nine on a 10 scale. And yeah. for that, I'm so grateful. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's very, you know, relatable to, to me. And that's also, you know, kind of what I see a lot with, you know, people who are in this organization, Cheetah House, which, you know, helped me heal and where I also kind of work with other people and started mentoring people is that a key part of recovering from this type of meditation induced psychological distress is often like uh, new relationships with things that you really enjoy. And so people suddenly find mountain bike riding, you know, or they find like, you know, vigorous exercise in a new way. I mean, I even picked up golf in the aftermath of this, you know? <laughs> and so, and it was like, it, it was just very different though. And I think the other thing that is happening there, and this is really something that Willoughby helped me understand is that, like you said, you can become so aware of your bodily sensations that it goes far beyond what is helpful. In fact, it's harmful. And so a lot of what I had to do was sort of crowd my attention out, force myself to focus on something besides my body, because that's what I was habituated to. So I did a lot of activity that like mandated my attention, you know, like, and so if, if I'm hanging out with a bunch of people or talking to them, you know, or I'm playing a sport or I'm gardening or also like, you know, I watched a lot of movies as part of my healing process to try to get absorbed in something else besides my own experience. And there's some real irony here that basically I was reconditioning myself, you know? Uh, I was putting some of the layers back on, yeah. you know, to, to use a popular kind of Dharma metaphor because I realized that I needed them, especially to function in this modern world. And I think that's another important question that you kind of spoke to. Like, if I had been doing these practices in a monastery where all my needs were taken care of, then it would have been fine for me to be mm -hmm. dissociating for 18 months, you know? Oh, totally. But there's not a lot of people in this modern world who can, can do that. And so I think we need to, to help people find ways to practice that doesn't necessitate long spells of terror, panic, and dysfunction. Totally. No, let's grow up here. I mean, this yeah. is a, a powerful and precious tool. And, and that gets me to, so now, Dan, uh, you're still working in meditation. Uh, tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm still teaching a little bit of meditation. Um, an interesting thing that happened was, you know, 
shortly after I had my traumatic experience, there was a global pandemic, which sort of shifted my meditation classes because they were in person. Um, and I don't really teach that much online, but I still, I still teach uh, occasionally. And, uh, but I've recently taken a job at a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center and, and, and to do some work in support there. And I think I'm recognizing that I may want to return to mindfulness teaching more, but it seems like for me to really understand this stuff, I may have to fully put it down for a while. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, maybe the most frustrating thing for me was when I heard from like Willoughby that so many teachers had had this experience and they hadn't talked about it. But pretty quickly I understood what happens there. You know, I mean, I think there's not a clear path to be, to be a mindfulness teacher where you're filling classes with a stress reduction technique and then to suddenly start talking about like people having profound and distressing experiences. There's a lot of dissonance that you have to hold there. And so I understand why people end up in places where they just suppress this stuff and don't talk about it. So, you know, for me, I'm not really much of a meditator anymore. I, I have enough mindfulness. I don't feel the need to cultivate more. I, I'm very interested maybe in continuing to write about these things. I think that might be where my value is in the world. And, and to, you know, to maybe teach a little bit, but there's a million te people teaching mindfulness. Yeah. And there's just not nearly enough people looking at it critically. And I think, you know, my other background is, is in reporting, is in journalism, where I worked for a long time. And it's striking that there's so little accountability in, in this area. You know, I mean, we have this kind of vigorous tradition of interrogating and challenging people in power. At least it's a big calling card of, of the press. But, you know, you don't see a lot of ability to understand what's happened with Buddhist modernism. And especially with Buddhism as it's moved in to all these secular places and often described itself as secular when it probably isn't. And I think that's just because it's incredibly complicated. And it's also because, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people who, I mean, there's plenty of people who are gonna write features about how great Dharma practice is, you know, like for the New York Times, because they're also the people who are gonna be vulnerable and likely to get into this type of practice. It gives you this like incredibly compelling mixture of old mystical practice with new sort of scientifically backed up, you know, brain scan stuff. And people love that, right? And, and so it's, it's hard to see past it. Yeah, no, so totally true. And um, yeah, I, I would think that your, any work you could do just to continue to tell this story and to un, untangle all this. You're, you know, beautiful writer, you have the experience. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, I think that I love, I love what you said a minute ago about I'm mindful enough, Yeah. you know, um, and I feel that way too. I yeah. actually feel that despite the, the, the pain of, of my meditation, I have great fruits from that, that I, it's just there, you know, it's, it's part of me, but how great it would be to have a path that, uh, you know, just had a more mature relationship 
with it from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that word is the word that I would use as well, you know, maturity. And I think part of it probably stems from the fact that, you know, these practices really have only been here in earnest for, you know, 50 years or so. And a lot of the people who were the most powerful figures 40 years ago are still the most powerful figures. There hasn't been much of a changing of the guard. And so, you know, take like the pioneering work somebody like John Cabot Zinn did in 1979. You know, he created an eight-week curriculum in mindfulness-based stress reduction. But that curriculum hasn't really changed in 42 years. And that's often talked about as a, as a, a virtue, as a positive thing. But, you know, would, would you want to do like a, a physical therapy regimen that hadn't changed in 42 years? Would you be interested in like a gastroenterologist that was using technology from 42 years ago? Like, like in what other modalities is the knowledge of 42 years ago, the curriculum 42 years ago, still what we want to be using right now? And so something strange has happened, I think, where, you know, there's a lot of power concentrated in the old guard of mindfulness teachers. And um, it's not that they're sort of, bad people or anything you know but it's just that i think the way that things move forward is yeah. that new generations come into the mix and they piggyback on the work of the past and that really hasn't happened much here to my knowledge we're doing a lot of the same things that we did 30 or 40 years ago the big difference is 30 or 40 years ago meditating was, was a weird strange hippie thing to do and right now you know, like the CEOs in Silicon Valley are doing it on their lunch break. It's right. ubiquitous. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And welcome to the evolution of human consciousness and, and yeah. culture. Yeah. Well, Dan, what fun. Really yeah. nice talking to you. Is there anything uh, in closing that you think we ought to lay on the table? Or do we get it all sorted out? <laughs> so much, so much here. Um, I mean, I guess if I, if, if you'll indulge me, I just, I just want to say if, if somebody's like listening to this podcast, you know, and you're having distressing or challenging experiences related to your meditation practice, you know, just know that, that you're not alone in that. And, you know, this organization Cheetah House that I'm a part of works with people, you know, specifically to help them heal from this. And, um, you know, hopefully it won't be the only organization someday that helps people to heal from it, but it, but it is now. And so just to know that, yeah, there is, there are like a lot of people out there with similar stories who can help you move through this process and that you're not alone with this experience. Right on. Thank you. And it's Cheetah House, like Cheetah the cat. Yes. House. Yes. Dot com, I assume, or something, right? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll link dot to org. it. Dot com. Yeah. You can, yeah. I'll link to it in the description. So, yeah. all right. Well, blessings on your work. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences and really writing a brilliant essay. I recommend everybody read it. I'll link to it as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, appreciate your work. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, you know, I appreciate you having me on here. It was a really fruitful conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Dan Lawton, again, the uh, essay is When Buddhism Goes Bad, How My Mindfulness Practice Led Me to Meltdown on Substack. 
And again, thanks, Dan. Thank you. Stay in touch. See you next time.